in our educational institutions, we've had to bring about change almost overnight. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an unprecedented impact on higher education around the world over the past year. As institutions were forced to close their doors, learning and teaching moved online. Staff and students had to adapt to using technology at a quicker rate than ever before. Many of my staff are now telling me that this online teaching seems to be much more taxing than in-person teaching. But for many institutions, learning and teaching online is not new. During the pandemic and this kind of shift to online, what they call the online pivot, that was people acted as if online learning had just been invented. And there was lots of us sort of over on the sidelines going, well, we've been doing this for you know, a good 20 years now. Across this series, I'll be exploring how higher education is changing in response to the digital revolution. What can universities do to influence how technology is used? And how can technology be used to influence the design and delivery of higher education? I'm Natasha Locken. Welcome to the Internationalist podcast from the Association of Commonwealth Universities. In this episode, I'll be exploring some of the benefits and challenges that higher education will face in our digital future. My guests are Professor Chilitsi Marwala, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Johannesburg in South Africa, and Professor Martin Weller, Professor of Educational Technology at the Open University in the UK. But first of all, we'll hear from Professor Darrell van Gunen, who leads the Research, Engagement and Innovation Group at Nelson Mandela University in Port Elizabeth in South Africa. We asked Professor van Gunen to sum up the digital developments she feels have made most impact in recent years. In our educational institutions, we've had to bring about change almost overnight with our teaching methods, with the way in which we equip our classrooms, and how we go about interacting with one another. Of course, we know in countries like South Africa and other African countries, the gap between rich and poor often manifests as a digital divide. However, technology had to be made available to those who could not afford it to ensure that we provide equal opportunities for all. Technologies such as virtual reality and augmented reality has now opened up new and exciting possibilities to students and learners who may not have had access to this before. We now have robotics, advanced materials, 3D printing, quantum computing, blockchain, 5G, and all sorts of technologies that is no longer foreign words to the education fraternity on the African continent. I think it's safe to say that the fourth industrial revolution is now with us and that we have all had to adapt and can attest to the fact that our learning experiences and the way in which we are offering these learning experiences has changed forever through the use of these new technologies. There is no going back now. So there's no doubt in Professor Van Gunen's mind that the use of technology in higher education is here to stay. I asked Professor Chilitsi Marwala, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Johannesburg, if he felt the same. 
there are two aspects of this uh, answer. The first one is that uh, some things have changed forever. I think some form of online learning is part of us. Some part of virtualization is part of us. But uh, there are other parts that we have to go back to. I think uh, physical contact, we have to go back to maybe it will be different because we have to do social distancing. We should have uh, classrooms that are much, much smaller than they were before the pandemic. So the answer is both. Some will change, some won't change. And you mentioned social distancing there. What do you think, from your perspective, has been the most challenging aspect of of dealing with with COVID in this context? Uh, Well, uh, I suppose uh, human contact is very, very important. Human beings are social animals. Uh, And the digital social uh, communities are not just the same thing. And secondly, we have many, many students uh, who come from rural areas. Uh, So when they were at their homes, connectivity was not as good as if they were in urban areas. We had to give all our students data, uh, which was a new line item on our budget, uh, so that they can be able to access uh, online uh, materials. I think when it comes to tests, uh, it was not smooth, especially for subjects such as uh, mathematics, lab-based Um, subjects are quite uh, difficult for us to be able to execute while our students are scattered all over the country. How do you think the pandemic has exacerbated or highlighted those existing challenges? Was there a kind of differential approach beforehand or has the pandemic really kind of highlighted the divide, I guess, in that sense? Absolutely. Uh, The pandemic has highlighted uh, the digital divide. Uh, The digital divide means uh, um, access to data. It means... uh, access to good broadband connectivity and that is not uh, uniform across uh, the board. Uh, It meant uh, access to devices. So we had to go and procure devices and send them throughout all our country so that uh, our students can be able to connect to the internet, even though some of the connection would have been small, uh, slow because uh, of the connectivity issues. As much as those challenges have have been present, and as you say, you know, your university, as an example, has come up with solutions to, to overcome them, thinking about that as a very temporary crisis situation, you know, you mentioned the idea of smaller classrooms, you know, the use of technology in the classroom, um, you, you know, if there is a physical classroom, then how how do you think that change is going to to happen? We've had this switch almost overnight, is it a longer-term process to really bring about that 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 change, that transformation? No, I I, I think that transformation is going to, uh, to 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 be happening uh, for quite a long time. The reason for that is because one thing that I really realized was that uh, the technology for remote learning is less than perfect. You know, I mean, I think uh, going into the future, you are going to see much more virtual reality uh, into our classrooms. We we were not doing any of the virtual reality in our teaching. Um, um, you're going to see more holograms. What do you think this means for teaching staff, for lecturers, for, for those who are having to deliver this content? You know, what, what about the skills and the support that they need? No, no, absolutely. Uh, 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 what, what it basically means, it means we need to reskill 
the the academic staff that are already with us, and we 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 need to uh, uh, to look at um, the the whole training of academics. One of my 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 biggest uh, criticism of uh, higher education is that. Uh, we never really uh, teach our professors how to teach. Now, with all these developments and the complexities around these developments, it, it actually makes it more of a necessity that we must have structured programs to reskill and skill uh, our academics so that they can be able to handle uh, this uh, new context in which they are supposed to, to be able to deliver to our students. From now onwards, uh, any university that is not thinking digitally is certainly going to be left behind. Uh, we will have to reinvent ourselves many, many times um, as technology evolves. And I suppose that really speaks to the, to the idea of the fourth industrial revolution. Well, the fourth industrial revolution is the era where humans and technologies are actually converging which basically means almost everything that we do, uh, we employ uh, technology. And at the same time, technology is becoming intelligent. And in some, uh, in some tasks, and I have to use the word tasks uh, uh, quite uh, carefully here, uh, technology is able to do things much better than human beings. You know? So that is what the fourth industrial revolution uh, is all about. Now, given the fact that uh, many of the tasks in, the, in our workplaces, in our homes, are going to be done with the aid of machines. Now, me as an educator, I have to ask myself, uh, how, what do I have to, how do I have to teach? What, what do I have to change in my curriculum so that uh, uh, my students are actually going to be adapted uh, to, that, uh, to that era? And there are a number of initiatives that we have introduced here at the University of Johannesburg. One of it is, is that uh, we have now uh, made um, a course on artificial intelligence compulsory for all our students. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, talking about an artificial intelligence course um, that is similar to what you would uh, see in a computer science. So this is a general course which does, just talks about... Uh, uh, the, the the whole process of uh, of this technology, what it is, how it how is it uh, changing all aspects of our lives? What are some of the ethical issues, and how do we prepare for it? So uh, it is clear that uh, given all these developments, our curriculum has to change so that our graduates are adapted to these changes. I guess beyond higher education needing to prepare itself for the fourth industrial revolution, I suppose in reaction to that and in order to help students for that wider world, what opportunities are there for universities themselves for the sector in terms of actually embracing the fourth industrial revolution? Um, and I suppose really, I mean, you said reimagining themselves. No, absolutely. I mean, the opportunities are quite huge. Uh... Uh, I think uh, the universities will also have to reinvent uh, themselves uh, because uh, much of this knowledge is being uh, developed at many uh, great universities. Now, um, what we ought to be asking ourselves is um, how do we make sure that uh, the fourth industrial revolution and all these developments are part of our research agenda? 
How do we finance that? What are the problems that we ought to be solving? Uh, for here in South Africa, we, we very often find that uh, many of these technological um, gadgets are not adapted to our phenotype. They are not adapted to our languages and so on and so forth, uh, simply because uh, they are not trained using our languages. And of course, uh, our languages are, are, are different. Um, Bantu languages are different from Indo-European languages. The grammar is different. The texture and the sounds are different. Uh, how do we create algorithms that will be able to understand uh, uh, um, uh, this? So that is one aspect of it. You know? uh, and then obviously there's the aspect of curriculum that I've already um, uh, addressed. Uh, there's an aspect of our, of our engagement with uh, industry. Um, which industries do we uh, engage and, uh, and what are the offerings that we are giving as a, as, 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 as a university? And ultimately, I think it is about saving society. What are the pressing needs of society? And how can these technologies that are emerging right in front of our, our eyes um, uh, useful in order to deal with the problems that uh, society is, is facing? And in South Africa, it's the problem of uh, unemployment, inequality, and poverty. So Professor Marwala raised many of the issues associated with the use of digital technology, among them the additional cost of providing data and devices to students. He also spoke about how lecturers are finding online teaching more taxing and that the technology for delivering online learning is less than perfect. My next guest, Professor Martin Weller, is Professor of Educational Technology at the Open University in the UK. Professor Weller was part of the team that developed the Open University's first fully online undergraduate course in 1999. I asked him if it was considered radical at the time. It was considered radical. I remember a colleague of mine at the Open University who'd been there for many years said, well, you won't get 50 students on that. No one wants to study like that. And in the end, we got something like 15,000 students on that course. So it was clear a lot of people did want to study like that. Um, And it was quite important really in shifting the open university to becoming a much more of a, a digital university because in some ways it it really answered the question like, can we teach this way effectively and the answer was yes uh so yeah so it is a bit of a surprise when uh during the pandemic and this kind of shift to online what they call the online pivot that was people were acting as if online learning had just been invented and there was lots of us sort of <laughs> over on the sidelines going, well, we've been doing this for you know a good 20 years now, you know, it's like, and it's not new. And it often seemed like people were discovering things that had been known for quite some time. So uh, th- that, that can be frustrating sometimes. Was there a perception that online learning was second rate? And in your opinion, has that persisted? In some ways, I think it's got worse. So yeah, there was a perception, not so much that in the Open University that it would be second rate, but just that... There was concerns, and they were quite valid at the time, about whether enough students would have access to the internet. You have to remember this was back in the time of dial-up internet and those kind of things, and with whether students would have good enough computers and those kind of things. So there were some concerns around that. But in some ways, I think that that perception you talk about, about uh, online learning being second rate, I think I've seen come to the fore even more during the pandemic. And partly I think that's a result of the, the online learning that a lot of students are receiving isn't as isn't very good because it was an emergency pivot in many ways and that that's understandable so you know within six weeks suddenly lots of lecturers had to put their courses online and and the obvious thing to do then is just to convert your lectures to doing them online and that's always a a deficit model then you know you're saying is the online lecture as good as the face-to-face one well probably not but but that's not 
the be all and end all of online learning. You can create online learning in many different ways and really sort of take advantage of the medium. So I found myself pushing back against that kind of perception uh, last year, you know, that, that the online lecture equals online learning because there are many different ways of doing online learning that take advantage of things like for being as- asynchronous. So a lot of our courses, students don't need to be at a certain place at a certain time. You know, they can study at their own pace and organise their own study times. Um, you can do group work that's kind of much more spread out and allow students to kind of find other resources and bring those in. And so you can really take advantage of, of what the internet offers rather than just trying to replicate the face-to-face model online. So do you think there'll be a shift in these attitudes towards online learning as and when universities globally return to face-to-face teaching? Yeah, I think we'll see a, a mixture of attitudes really. And it's difficult to predict which, if any, will be prominent. And I think w- we might well see a backlash against it. I think there'll be an attitude that when we tried online learning, students didn't like it as much. Let's just go back to face-to-face. That's what we do best. And I think think you might see some people be more radical and go, we're going to go completely online. It allows us much more flexibility. But I think more likely you'll see a a, a mixture, a blend. Many students at campus universities, although they, they weren't that keen on a lot of the online learning, it was also wrapped up with just the campus itself being closed and coffee bars being closed all, all those sorts of things uh, but they did find some bits useful being able to access the lectures whenever they wanted um, often the removal of exams and much more flexible options of assessment coming into play so I think we'll begin to see a mixture of those kind of things and now that students have experienced it they'll want that kind of flexibility and adaptability built into their, their normal um, education and, and that presents a challenge really because universities are then having to operate a kind of hybrid model of both being a face-to-face and a slightly distance education model as well. I think one of the things about universities and particularly senior management university is that they like building buildings. There's something kind of concrete they can point to and that's often what we view a university as. It's a kind of collection of buildings, a campus you go to, you know, you'll go to many university, uh, many city centres and there'll be all number of buildings sort of springing up and the campus getting increasingly bigger and that kind of stuff. And that's a kind of solid investment that you know, when a new vice chancellor comes in, they nearly always want to put a new building up somewhere. Um, and I think that's, a, I'm, I'm being slightly cynical, but that is a kind of a, a significant psychological shift, I think, to thinking, you know, that the kind of physical structure of a university is actually maybe not what the university is. The university is actually the staff and the students, and it's much more nebulous in a way, I think. Um, and you can and we spend a lot of time often with these buildings trying to open them up and you know make them part of the community so people come in for you know open sessions those kind of things but actually you can achieve a lot of that engagement much more effectively online whether it's through social media you know open events and those kind of things so I think there's a, a very significant shift for universities about what their boundaries are and those boundaries and what they can control as well. And that control and boundary issue is a lot more blurred when you're online for both for good and bad, I think. There have obviously been challenges with online learning during this crisis period. And, you know, Professor Marwala referred to, you know, the fact that there are issues. Has the pandemic revealed fragilities in higher education systems? I think so very much. I think in some ways it's a real wake up call about, areas of weakness within just the whole higher education system so and it was a pandemic this time but it might well be something else that causes these things to happen later maybe it's climate change maybe it's economic unrest but things like bringing everyone together to one location relying on synchronous presentation uh, you know through lectures 
bringing everyone together for a single high-risk assessment such as an exam, those are all kind of weak points in the overall system. Um, and when the pandemic hit, it turned out we didn't have very good alternatives to those in place, and it kind of really revealed those fragilities. And if you look at something like uh, conventional distance education, it's a much more robust model. I, I like to compare it to the design of the internet. It's designed to be distributed and open so anyone can access it, but also it, it's spread out so there's no one kind of centre that's that's vulnerable to, to some kind of weakness. And I think when we have time to reflect, and I'm not sure we will, we will get time to reflect, but if we do have time to reflect as a whole for the sector, then analysing those weaknesses in the structural system will be really important, I think, for, for the next thing that comes along. There has been a view that online learning is an opportunity to, to reduce costs or to kind of maximise income. Do you think that's the case? Is that feasible? Uh, in a word, no. I mean, that that argument's been around since the late 90s when sort of e-learning had its kind of first flush of interest. And it hardly ever works out. It's a shift in cost, you know, so... Um, you know, you're not building buildings, kind of expensive laboratories and those kind of things, but you often have to do a lot more in terms of preparing a course so they can be studied at a distance, can be studied online. You know, at the Open University, we often take up to two years to write a course, which is then in presentation for uh, eight years. And that's a lot different to a single, that's uh, the work of a multidisciplinary team doing that. That's a lot different to a single academic, you know, just creating their lecture notes, you know, um, fairly, fairly quickly. So, costs shift but actually you, you it's like all these things it's like whenever the digital technology comes along it really kind of ends up saving money in, in so many sectors but it kind of just reallocates those costs and that kind of goes back to a point i made earlier about there's going to be a problem for many universities now that they're now going to have to try and combine both of those different cost models within a kind of hybrid approach are universities ready to confront that reality, do you think? Are there models out there that, that, that they can look at where this hybrid system works? I think there are a number of ways to approach it, So, um, which many of those will provide challenges to how universities operate. So, for example, one model might be to use more open educational resources, OER, in their teaching. So you're not creating all of the content yourself, but rather adapting open textbooks or content from elsewhere. Um, another one might be to um, work more collaboratively in small teams, but then have that content um, rolling out over a prolonged period. So I think it's going to require adaptations to what they do. Um, and a another model, which I think appeals to many universities, but I'm not sure is the, the best route, is to effectively outsource the content production and just use a third party content provider for them. Uh, and, and they just concentrate on the, the teaching that goes around that. But I think the, the problem with that is you're then not developing the skills in, in your staff to develop online courses effectively. What do you think the challenges are for higher education as technology becomes more widely used in education and society? I think it's, uh, well, there are a number of challenges. One is keeping up with it and, and knowing when, which technologies are worth investing in and, and are going to stick around because technology, technologies come along and people make a big fuss about them and everyone rushes to them and then three years later they've disappeared you know so and, and education is a much more kind of longer term game you know universities have been around for hundreds of years so we, we don't want to kind of flip and flop to the latest technology uh, but equally you, need, you don't want to stay stuck in the mud and not change people often accuse higher education of being slow to change or having not changed at all and that, that's simply not true there's been a lot of innovation a lot of change uh, over the years but but it is 
quite conservative in how it changes it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So um, I'll pick an example. So lots of people are making a lot of fuss about blockchain, you know, the thing that underlines cryptocurrencies, all those kind of things at the moment, and saying we need to use it for higher education. But I've yet to be convinced that there's a good use case in higher education. But it seems like it's one of those things that people say, we should be using it because look, it's everywhere, isn't it exciting? I mean, and I, but I'm not. I've yet to be convinced that there's something really good there for us to use. And if there is, fine, I'm happy to do that. But that that seems one of those ones that's kind of driven a lot by hype. Um, but equally, we there are kind of things, and we mentioned virtual reality and uh, augmented reality, where you can certainly see very useful uh, educational applications that would really enhance in certain disciplines what people do. So you need to make sure you're kind of getting that balance right. And I think the second thing is. Um, Technology often challenges what we do in higher education. Um, so one of the things we saw, for example, in the online pivot was uh, people went, oh, okay, we can't do face-to-face exams, so we'll do online exams. And they're using a lot of these uh, exam proctoring software things. And there's been a lot of controversy about those exam proctoring things. They've been very invasive. They don't favour certain students. They kind of Students are saying they've been told that if they feel sick, they have to be sick at their desk. Well, they can't leave their desk or something. So they're kind of... They're very unethical, a lot of these platforms, um, and there's there's a kind of big controversy around them. And I think what that demonstrates is that higher education often was more prepared to just perpetuate its current practice, even at the disadvantage of students, than to fundamentally think about, for example, how do we change assessment? You know, online assessment shouldn't be an exam, it should maybe be something different. Um, and so I think the technology itself there is making us rethink what we want, what we do in higher education and what are the fundamental things that we, we hold dear and how we change our practices. It's not so much about the technology, but it's about the kind of practice and the policy and the drivers behind it. And then technology is the vehicle. Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think that what the pandemic has shown is in some ways it's given a big boost to online learning. You know, suddenly everyone's had to engage with it. You, you know, you can't say we don't know what it is or we don't do it. And in some ways it demonstrated the importance of educational technologists and instructional designers within universities who are often, prior to that, have been sort of quite rootless often. They kind of get moved around to different departments, you know, and, and, and they're not listened to often. And I think it's kind of demonstrated their significance. And uh, there was a survey out recently saying that I think sort of like 60 odd percent of universities in the UK have changed their educational technology policies as a result of the pandemic. So it certainly brought that to the fore now. So, so it, that, that's in some ways an opportunity for those of us who work in online education. Um, but it's also an opportunity for lots of perhaps less scrupulous <laughs> companies to kind of say, we can come in and solve your problem for you, which is, you know, what a lot of uh, vice chancellors might want. So I think how we approach it over the next few years, how we deal with this kind of sudden change in attitude to online learning uh, and trying to do that ethically and for the best purpose for students will, I think, determine a lot for how higher education turns out. 25 years ago, could you have envisaged how online teaching and learning would have developed in the current picture and what do you think the next 25 years might hold looking back 25 years so um i expect this was my opportunity to do a plug so i wrote a book called 25 years of edtech which went from uh 94 to 2018 so it it doesn't cover the pandemic um in some ways you could predict it so um you know when i saw the web back in sort of 94 95 you know i immediately knew it'd be useful for education particularly for distance education um, and I, I was surprised that lots of people 
were dismissing it. You know, even at the time when it was we using dial up and it was you know, slow to access, you could see this was going to be important for education. So in some ways, I think that was predictable. I think a lot of the broader impacts um, weren't predictable, or so I, I couldn't see them. So things like you know the importance of social media, for instance, in in predicting elections or you know influencing elections, all those kind of things, and and how much misinformation spreads around and those kind of things, and and the fact that people's experience of life is often driven through uh, Facebook and the things that are shared on Facebook. And I think those kind of social impacts, um, certainly I, I didn't predict and not many people did, I don't think. So, and those so, those social impacts are also educational impacts, of course, because we're operating in that area. So, um, so I think that kind of demonstrates that it's always difficult to make predictions. So <laughs> I'd be very cautious about predicting the next 25 years. But I think one thing that that is clear is you know technology is now a pervasive and by technology i'm really sort of meaning online technology is now a pervasive part of everyone's lives and so it's kind of beholden on higher education to help people deal with that that doesn't necessarily mean teaching everyone to be a programmer but it does mean helping them understand for instance for instance how algorithms may affect their lives and bias and algorithms and how we as humans interact in a data society and issues around privacy and ethics and all those kind of things. So I think there's a a broader picture, no matter what you're studying, about how uh, technology is impacting that sector and, and what your um, what your role is within that, and also what higher education's role is. I think you know higher education should be modelling lots of things. These things. That's why you know I, I mentioned ethics a lot, but I think you know higher education. For instance, we we ethically source the coffee that we sell on our campuses. I think we should we should ethically source the technology we use in our education as well. So I think we have a, a role to play there in, in modelling good practice as well. So it's clear that this is not just about technology, platforms, data, devices, although these are important. This topic goes right to the heart of what universities are and what they do. I'd like to thank Professor Van Hoenen from Nelson Mandela University, Professor Marwala from the University of Johannesburg and Professor Weller from the Open University. The Association of Commonwealth Universities is committed to highlighting the issues that influence learning and teaching in our world. In our next edition, we'll be looking at what skills will be required to make sure that technology-enhanced learning in the future is a success. So please do subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts and like, comment and share the programme. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Just search for the Association of Commonwealth Universities. The Internationalist is presented by me, Natasha Locken, and produced by Jill Davis. It's an Earshot Strategies production for the Association of Commonwealth Universities.